Good morning. Uh, the scripture passage today is Acts 26, verses 1 through 32. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a, as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. What is it, or what is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In, the, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would, proclaim, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. 
And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. We just sang the words, and I want to set your minds here, there in the ground, his body lay light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he arose, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the idea of the resurrection today, but uh, before we do so, just want to say congratulations to the Wibberleys, Aaron and Laura on Little Riley Rose. There she is back there. And also John and Janice Dechara, yeah, who have a little Rose and a little Zoe in the back there. Thankful for that. I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you, looked you in the eye and said, you're crazy, right? Or if you've ever felt a little bit like, man, this world is crazy. Like, I don't know what's happening in this world today. It feels like the world has gone mad some way. We use the word mad in different ways. You know, we can, it means angry, like we're really mad at each other. But it, it can also be a compliment, like, man, those are some mad cool clothes you got on. Mad cool sneakers you got on right now. Or it can also just mean somebody who's lost their mind, somebody who um, is a little loony, right? And sometimes in our world today, it feels like the world is a little bit off. Like there's a concept uh, that somebody introduced to me recently that's called social acceleration. The idea of social acceleration is that every technological change in a culture takes a period of time for the people in the culture to grow acclimated to it. So th some people say actually that with the printing press, it took actually like 150 years before the kind of reverberations of the printing press's influence could kind of settle down. And if you think of the number of changes that we've had in our culture, even in the last 10 years, it's phenomenal the number of technological changes. I won't, I won't go into all of them. But even changes in um, not just technology but in morality. Uh, Harvard University has been around for more than 300 years. Uh, it was established in 1636. So like, that's older than our country. Here's a university older than our country. And actually, John Harvard studied at Emmanuel College in Cambridge, England, and came over with a great deal of money, established Harvard University with his funds. And for several 300-plus years, we've been having chaplains appointed there. Actually, Harvard was established in part to provide clergy for the expansion into what became North America. That's, that was its founding purpose, for Christ and for truth. Well, recently, the, chap the newest chaplain at Harvard University was appointed as an atheist. So just put those words together in our mad world. Chaplain, atheist. Atheist, 
chaplain. So I asked the question, like, is our world going mad? And what do you do when it seems like the world's going mad around you? There's a, there's a decent basketball player whose name is Le- LeBron James. He's right at the top of basketball players today, a little bit below Michael Jordan, somewhere beneath him. But somebody asked him, like, how does he deal with the madness of um, his own life? What does it take to have, like, the mental toughness to be engaged week after week? And he had this great little definition of mental toughness that I want to give to you. So he said, a lot of people think of mental toughness as this ability to push through and persevere through pain. Like, you're really going through something difficult and you persevere. He said, that's true. He said, I don't disagree with that. He said that for me, mental toughness means being able to go to another place so to speak, in terms of concentration, and so get so focused on something else that the, that the pressures and the, the pain that you're experiencing right now almost seems to dissipate. And I say that because there's something amazing happens in this passage. The Apostle Paul finds a different perspective on his life. Here's a guy on trial. Here's a guy who's probably going to get, he does eventually uh, get executed. But he's actually joyful to share the message that he's sharing today. He's eager to share it. And part of the reason is because he's found this other place, a different perspective, that's actually called the resurrection of Jesus. I don't want to be trite. You've heard of the resurrection before. But I want to show you how the resurrection reshapes your perspective. I want to show you how the resurrection gives you a kind of hope and optimism that our world actually needs. I'm going to call the message the insanity of the resurrection in a world gone mad. (laughs) Or let me flip it. The sanity of uh, of the resurrection in a world gone mad. I'll put it this way. Jesus' resurrection is the cure and the healing that our mad, insane world needs. And that's what Paul's going to show us in this text. Um, I'm going to break it in three parts. It's a long text, 1 through 32. Let me just give it to you in three sections. I'm going to spend almost all my time in the first two sections, verses 1 to 11. Our little history, Paul's on trial, and he's, he's giving his own history before King Agrippa and Festus, who's the governor. And then he moves to a heavenly vision in verses 12 to 18. In that section, he, this is where I'm going to spend most of our time. He meets Jesus. That's where he's given his hope. That's where he has this kind of life-transforming encounter. And then he gives us what you might call his, um, his heartfelt conviction in the validity of the resurrection itself. So that's where we're going to go. Let me bow and ask God's help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that you have uh, brought us together again. I pray just, Lord, in, in the circumstances of our world that can often seem out of control and crazy, that you would help us to see some of the sanity of the resurrection of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verses 1 to 11. 
what happens is Paul stands up in front of Agrippa, and Agrippa, who's the king um, of the region at that time, he's also, his, his full name is Herod Agrippa II. His uncle is the one who uh, took the head off of John the Baptist. His, great, his grandfather is Herod the Great, who just tried to slaughter Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, what's called the slaughter of the innocent. So he's from a really corrupt line. But he's knowledgeable, this, this uh, King Agrippa, in, in the details of Judaism, which is why Paul says that he's thankful to be able to, to present his case to him. And what he does is he begins presenting his case, and you could think of it this way, that he just really makes two points about his own history. One is that he's a Pharisee, two is that, he's, that he was a persecutor. Now, for some of you, the word Pharisee is a word that you are familiar with. In, in Jewish uh, understanding, in the, in the Jewish religion, the Pharisees were the strictest uh, sect within Judaism. So, in what's called the mitzvot, which is all the commandments in the Old Testament, there's more than 500 of them. They were the ones who tried to keep every single commandment. What Paul says is, he says to the Pharisees who are actually have him on trial, he says, guys, you knew what my life was like when I was growing up. You watched me. He sat at the feet of a guy whose name was Gamaliel. He was in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, you know my hometown. You know where I'm from. But then what he does in verses 2 through 4, is he says, Paul, Paul does this, he says, um, the reason why I'm on trial is a reason that you should also believe. And I'll, I'll, let me explain it this way. The, the Pharisees and all of Judaism actually believed in the concept of the resurrection. So the idea that someone would rise from the dead for the Pharisees was not a new idea. They believed that everyone would be raised from the dead at the last day of judgment, some to righteousness and some to judgment. That's what they believed. So what Paul is actually doing is saying, you guys already believe in the resurrection? <laughs> Just be, so if one guy is raised from the dead, why would that surprise you? That's his logic. In fact, that's what it says in chapter 25, verse 19, is the reason why he's on trial he says, they had certain disputes, this is Festus speaking, with him about their own religion and about Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. In our community group this week, I asked everybody, what's one uh, nightmare, recurring nightmare that you've had? And there are lots of interesting ones. I'm not going to list all them all. But one of the themes was uh, lack of, a couple people said, like, I, I'm in college and I, I'm, I forgot to bring my assignment, and, and it's too late to turn in. My wife sent me a New, York, New Yorker cartoon, uh, texted me after group, then it said this. There's like a professor leaning against a blackboard, and it says, final exam. And then there's like all these people in these rows here, right? And the teacher's saying, I want to welcome you today to the final exam. And all of those who are here for the first time as part of your ongoing nightmare, Right, like you, you've well, there's a little bit of a nightmare happening for Festus in this passage because he has to give the reasons why Paul is in jail and write a report about it, but he actually has no idea why Paul was arrested. In fact, Festus's whole narrative is, is this guy is not guilty, I can't find a reason why he's in jail. The guy before him, Felix 
had put him in jail and then just left him there. But he had no idea why he's there. So if you, I mentioned this last week, but you've ever been on a group project where somebody doesn't do their work, that's how he's feeling. Festus is, is like, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to hand in this report, but I have no idea why Paul is in jail. Well, what Paul really does is exert what he says is the hope of the Pharisees in verses 4 through 8. Here's what he says. I stand here on trial. This is verse 6. Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. To which all 12 tribes hope to attain. Hope and hope. As they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I'm accused by the Jews, O king. And why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If there's one claim in our modern scientific world that is hard for people who are trained in the scientists to wrap their minds around, often it is the resurrection. How could, the, how could somebody be raised from the dead? Like, what does that even mean? The reversal of the progress of, of the pathogens in the body being, being reversed. Um, if somebody, if that's for me, you can bring the phone up to, to the front, okay? Just teasing. Uh, how is it that the resurrection could possibly be true? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And I just want to take one second to just talk about the beauty of the resurrection for a moment. As a source of great hope, think of it this way. If the resurrection is true, then no illness can ever defeat you. If the resurrection is true, then your past behavior and your failures won't define you in the next life. If the resurrection is true, then your grade point average, which might be 0.2% lower than you want it to be, won't determine your future. Like, all that's going to be wiped away. No conflict that you have with another person will be determinative for you or can ultimately shape you. So the Apostle Paul is not saying that this life doesn't matter. It does. Find beauty, find friends. But he's saying that there's great hope in what is going to come. The people who want to kill Paul the people who are setting out to destroy him and who are accusing him here, they already believe in the resurrection. And so Paul is saying, why is it incredible to you that God raises the dead? The next little section is part of Paul's history. Instead of him speaking of himself being a Pharisee, he speaks of himself as being a, uh, a persecutor. And many, mo- many modern people, maybe you were raised this way, read the Bible as a book of morality. That it tells you the rules that you are supposed to obey. Civil religion in the United States regards the Bible as like a source of wisdom and insight. And yes, we should adhere to it. But the the message of morality actually changes the message of the Bible eventually. Because what moral Christian religion does is it says you have to obey in order to be right in God's eyes. And the problem with trying to do everything right before God is that you can never quite get to where you need to be. And so what happens oftentimes in moralistic 
religions is that it actually becomes harsh. Because the people who control the rules and have the power, and this is what happened to the Pharisees, hated people who taught against the law or hated people who didn't quite live up to how they were supposed to live up and they were so righteous and yet their hearts were corrupt. So what happened to Paul is he became one of these Pharisees who thought these people, he thought the disciples were overthrowing the law and so he wanted to put them in jail and even kill them. This is what uh, it says about him. He says, I was convinced, verse 9, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. What he was doing is trying to get them to say that Jesus wasn't who he said they were, who he was. But what's incredible is that the disciples were so convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead they would rather die or be exiled or be tortured or put in jail than deny that Jesus was who he was. That's how much they believed in it. So Paul's trying to get them to recant. And then it says, in raging fury I, against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone like raging fury, like <clears throat> something rises within someone. That's what was controlling the Apostle Paul. And oftentimes in religious moralism, there's a tremendous deep anger that is unleashed. That is actually completely contrary to the love and grace of who God is. That's the horror of moralistic religion. It gives you a standard that you cannot keep and it punishes you when you don't reach it. But everything changed for Paul when he encountered this heavenly vision. Because everything was free. Everything was a gift. And I just want to speak to you for a moment. Are you caught up in moralistic religion? Are you drowning in a kind of self-condemnation? Because you can't quite achieve what you need to. Are you, are you choking because your conscience tells you that you are living an immoral life? I just want to say then look to the resurrection and hear the voice of Jesus. Because that's what happened to Paul. Now, sometimes what happens when you read this section, you're like, oh man, I never had that light flashing experience. I never had this, like, this tremendous voice that spoke. Well, that's, the key now is just to hear who Jesus is and what he offers. That's what I want to show you. What is, who is Jesus? And what does the heavenly vision offer? Really, the most important question you can answer in your life is the question the Apostle Paul asks here, verse 19. I think it's verse 15, but it's so small I can't see it. And I said, who are you, Lord? That's the most important question that you can really ask. So I want to show you what happens when he looks at, um, when, when he has this encounter. So you have this flash of lightning. The Apostle Paul has it. This is verses 12 through 18. And uh, he goes to this place called Damascus at midday. He sees this tremendous light brighter than the, sh the sun that shone around me. Those who journeyed with me, they all fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's an agricultural image that I, I don't understand at all because I'm from the city. But it means like it means like uh, the stubbornness of a of cattle, basically. But here, isn't this an interesting question? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Two things that are fascinating about that. One is, Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the disciples of Jesus. But if I came up to you and I insulted you, if I treated you in a diminishing way, you're so connected. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're so connected to him that it's actually an insult to Jesus. That's crazy. The other thing that's crazy about the passage, though, is this guy's alive. The guy who was in the ground. The guy who was consumed by darkness. Light flickered forth again, and now he's the one talking to the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuted. And then listen to what, he, what Jesus says to him. But rise. And stand on your feet. What's he doing? He's restoring him. <laughs> he's recommissioning Paul. Actually, let's say it this way. He's redirecting Paul away from moralism towards free grace and salvation. This is a new posture. There's a, there's, let's talk about posture for a second. Yes, it's, there's a posture of worship which is like down on your face, a posture of worship which is on your knees. But there's another posture. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus look at you and say, stand up? Like, no, I'm good down here, thank you. There's a big light and flashing and I'm all right down here. No, stand up. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm unworthy, I'm undeserving, stand up. Why does, he, why does Jesus dignify him to tell him to stand up? He's not going to be any good down there on the ground for the mission that he has for him to do. And he's recommissioning him. He's redirecting him. In other words, he changes his posture, and then he says, let me give you a purpose to live. He restores him, and then he redirects him. I'll just ask you, anybody's posture need to be shaped, reshaped today? Anyone's posture needs to be told, yes, worship on your face, but also stand on your feet as a child of God, as a messenger for God. That's what Paul is told. He's told that he has a new purpose a redirection. He says, verse 15, I am Jesus, and I've appeared for this purpose to send you to the nations to open their eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost. Paul is restored, and Paul is redirected, and then he is given the message of, of rescue. He gives him the message that says you need to be rescued and you need to go tell other people how to be rescued. Listen to the dramatic terms of rescue in this passage. Go tell people that they who are walking in darkness can turn to the light. Go tell people who are following and under the power of Satan that they can be under the power of God. 
Go tell people who are broken and sinful that there's forgiveness that they can have once for all. And then over and over and over again, go tell people that there's a new place for you, a new people for you. That's the message that God gives to Paul. And what he does in the message is he's really playing on, it's really important that you understand that Jesus didn't show up, just show up in the world like unannounced or unexpected or anything like that. Blaise Pascal, who's a, uh, a mathematician and a Christian, has a place where he says that God took the prophecies about Jesus and scattered them and sprinkled them throughout history and throughout the texts so that when Jesus came, you'd know it was him. Isaiah 9 says, Behold, the people walking in darkness will see a great light. Isaiah 42 talks about when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes into the world, he will help people who are blind to see. He will take people who are in prison and let them go free. And what Luke, the author, is doing throughout the book of Acts is saying, see, the Son of God is in the world. See how he touched those eyes over there. And then the disciples are touching eyes as well to say, he's come to set you free, to open your eyes. And that the message is not just for the Jews, but it says Gentiles here, but you could say for the nations. What he's saying is this message is for the world. The world is to be told, stand up on your feet. Be restored. To be told you have a new purpose. To be told you can have peace with God, which is what he says, forgiveness. I'm going to sing a little bit later that our pardoned, our pardon was secured by his blood. And that is what happens. Jesus gives us a new posture. He gives us a new purpose. He gives us a new people. So what the very last little thing says in verse 18, that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So if you feel like you don't have a place in the world, well, maybe you don't. Maybe you've been displaced. Maybe you don't belong. But what Paul is saying, and what Jesus is saying to Paul is, no, I'm going to secure a place for these people who don't have a place. And that doesn't mean that heaven is the only thing. Let me rephrase that. That doesn't mean that this world doesn't matter. Beauty matters in this world. Friends matter in this world. Your vocation matters in this world. But it means it's only a shadow of what is going to come because of the resurrection. Friends, what if the insanity of the resurrection was true? Like, we need politicians, yes. And we need medical doctors, yes. We need parents, and we need mentors in the inner city, but we also need a new kingdom that's going to come by the resurrection. Only the resurrected Jesus can cleanse you with forgiveness. No other religion can do that. Buddhism can't do it. Islam can't do it. Moralism can't do it. Judaism can't do it. Independent fundamentalist Baptists can't do it. Progressive Christianity can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Friends, let's make 
this place, this people, a compelling community that has a new posture, has a new purpose, and is a new people committed to restoration and redirection and redemption. The secular project wants to convince you that you have lost your mind. The cathedral of secularism says it's only science that matters. And Paul, is so funny, in the last little section says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. What if the resurrection was just true and rational? And if the world's gone mad, then the sanity of the resurrection is what is needed. I'm going to close with uh, just one thought from a great writer whose name is Wendell Berry. And uh, some of you have read Wendell Berry. Great place to start is Jaber Crow. if you haven't read Wendell Berry. Don't read too much of him. If you read too much Wendell Berry, then you'll move to the rural area. So it's happened to people I love. Like they start reading him and then they get convinced and then they buy a farm. And then they have seven cats. I'm not kidding. And like 200 chickens. It start, it's a slippery slope. They started with like a four chickens in their backyard, you know, and then they're like, okay, let's expand. It's tragic to see that happening. Anyway, Wendell Berry is an agrarian essayist and novelist and poet. And he's ticked off. Doesn't matter what you read of his. If you read Jaber Crow, it's like he doesn't like the new farmers. In fact, he wrote a book, uh, he wrote a, a collection of poems called uh, Mad Farmer Poems. And the mad farmer is mad at the globalization of the world. It's, mad, it's angry at the destruction of war that sucks people out of these rural villages and sends them off namelessly to the front lines to die. It's angry that people just take land and in his language, rape it, destroy it, with no sense of loyalty to it. So this man is loyal to the soil. And he has one, one poem called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And he says, love the quick prophet. Just think of your life for a moment and whether you fall into this sometimes. Love the quick prophet, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you'll have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. And they'll want you to buy, when they want you to buy something, they'll call you. And when they want you to die for profit, they'll let you know. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. He's saying the world's gone mad. And he says this, then he goes on, love the Lord, love the whole world, work for nothing, tell all, nothing against dairy, dairy farmers, okay? Tell, tell, take all that you have and be poor, love someone who doesn't deserve it. How's that? Like, if you believe in the resurrection, can you love someone who doesn't deserve it? Because I didn't deserve it and you didn't deserve it. He says, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. 
Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful even though you have considered all the facts. We live in a broken world. We live in a world gone mad. And into a world gone mad comes a lonely prophet who says, I used to sit on a throne and I'm going to teach you a new way of life. A way of forgiveness and a way of humility and a way of joy. And he looks at you today and says, stand up. There's more in here in this passage about repentance and doing deeds in keeping with repentance. But today I just want to ask you if you need a new posture or a new purpose or new people that you might find it. A new place, but also peace, forgiveness. You're actually not mad. The world's gone mad. Why do you find it incredible that God raises the dead? Spoke the world into being. The sanity of Jesus is the cure for the madness of the world. The sanity of the resurrection is the only way this world will be healed. He's going to turn everything inside out and make it new. So stand up and be recommissioned today for what God's called you to do. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for a humble king, a countercultural king, a king who gives up everything, a king whose pomp and circumstance is his pomp and his, his wealth far outweighs King Agrippa. Far outweighs the wealth of the United States of America or any wealthy person here who gives up everything to show that the sanity of the world is insane. And to say that the, the most sane thing in the world, the most rational thing, is to live for someone who gave his life for us. So help us to live in that sanity this week, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.